I love it. Good morning, everybody. Hi. Um, oh, yeah, thanks. And a one, and a two, and a three. Ease my troubles, that's what you do. Goodbye, kids. Look at Chris, the Pied Piper. Oh, boy. Honey. Oh, look at I get both hugs. Bring the children unto me. Awesome. So as you can probably hear, uh, for whatever reason, the in-house sound just stopped working. Uh, it was working about 15 minutes ago, and it's not now. Uh, but the microphone is, it's all going through the computer. There it is. What would you do? All right, so we can do music now. Yeah, I don't know. The parents say no, no, we'll leave. There's a TV back there they can listen to, yeah. <laughs> well, how about that? Good job, Roger. Just keep pressing buttons. Excellent. Um, all right, so before we... Uh, get into uh, praying, before we pray and before we sing, um, as an illustration I want to share with you that concerns our study today, which is about the wrath of God. And that's what uh, our topic is going to be, uh, the wrath of God in the tribulation. And for We'll be looking at that for uh, at least the next few classes this week. Um, this situation that happened in Pennsylvania is uh, the South Fork Dam, which uh, you can sort of see right here, uh, is a, a dam that gave out after some very a long period of foul weather. And this is an earthen dam uh, just made of rock and dirt and other things. And it, it failed, and it broke. And all the water went down this valley and flooded this place, Johnstown in western Pennsylvania. Uh, about a 40-foot wall of water uh, moving in anywhere, depending on what part of the valley, uh, from 15 miles an hour to about 40 miles an hour. And it demolished everything in its path. Uh, <coughs> this uh, reservoir up here, this is a man-made lake. And that's the whole purpose of this dam was to make this lake uh, which they built a hunting and fishing club up there where the very richest and elitist, including Andrew Carnegie, uh, were members of this place. And the whole reservoir was for boating and for fishing and all of that. And uh, as you can see there, you can kind of see at the bottom, 16 million cubic feet of water all kind of at once went down the valley. Um, the flood was famous all over the United States. About 2,000 people died, which turned out to only be about 1 in 10. Crazy enough. Uh, it killed, it, the flood was indiscriminate. Uh, if you were down near the bottom, which were jo Jonestown, uh, it's not, not Jonestown, that's a different story. <laughs> that's a different tragedy. Uh, Johnstown was, uh, you saw go by and pile up at the bottom. Um, 
dead horses, cows, pigs, cats, dogs, everything, including people, about 2,000 people, and somewhere around 800 uh, kids uh, under 10 years old. Famous all over the United States. And for weeks afterwards, there was sermon after sermon on Sunday mornings about how the wrath of God had uh, hit America. There's a problem with that interpretation because it didn't hit America. It hit that place. And what we're going to see about the wrath of God is that when it finally does come, it's not going to be in one city. It's going to be everywhere, the entire earth. And as Jesus said, no one will escape it. Today we begin to study what is known as the wrath to come, otherwise known as the Great Tribulation. It's necessary that we understand what the wrath of God is and at whom and what it is directed. And we must understand what is the church. Are you ever going to be the object of the wrath of God? And that's something that you have to answer. Because all of us are sinners. And so are we going to be ever at any time uh, objects of the wrath of God? We have to understand and be able to answer that question. Um, what's further applicable to our study, here's some pictures of it, is this uh, bridge over here. This was a stone bridge that held. <laughs> and because it held, this is at the bottom. This is in Jonestown. At the bottom of all that gully, everything stopped there. All the debris stopped there. And what's amazing to me, when I, when I heard about this, I did an audio book on it, that a live people who had survived this flood, who got caught up in it, got stuck at the bridge. And they were underneath all this trees and dead animals and dead people. And then the whole thing caught fire. Amazing. As wet as it was, it all caught fire. A huge inferno. They said you could read a newspaper in, John, in Johnstown by the light of that fire. Um, and there, there it is. That's the aftermath of them just picking through it. Crazy. And uh, here's a rail car. And there's, uh, you know, anyway. So what is a, a further applicable to us is that it would, before the flood, it was known that this dam was up there and that it was you know, it's about 300, 400 feet higher in elevation and 15 miles up the valley. And everybody knows that that thing could go. And if it does, we're doomed. But it never did. So whatever, right? You just went on with your life. But they would threaten the bad kids with it. I would say, <laughs> if you're not good, the dam will break and come and get you. This was, it was known that this became a thing to say to the misbehaving kids. God would release the dam. Can you imagine going to bed at night knowing that God knows what you did and that you know up there somewhere in the dark of night there's a whole bunch of water behind a bunch of mud and that God could release it on you at any time. I liken that to the fact that God doesn't keep his wrath to come secret. He tells us. And in fact, the ones who know about it the most are the ones who aren't going to experience it. it. The people who are in danger of the wrath of God 
don't study the Bible. The people who are in danger of the, wrath of, the, of the wrath of God don't know about the tribulation to come. They don't know about what's to come. And we do. But we're not going to go through it. Uh, all, all evidence in the Bible points to the fact that the church will not go through the tribulational period. It's a period for Israel, not for us. And that will be raptured, or the church will be, if we're a part of that generation, will be raptured before the tribulation comes. And so, you know, what is the point of us knowing about it if we're not even going to go through it? And uh, I can answer that question for you. Because there is a, a very important application to it, to us, that applies now, even though we're not going to experience it in the future. So, um, the tribulation and knowing of it is very important. All right, so we're going to open up in prayer. We'll get into our subject. Uh, and I just wanted to say before we start that Rogers Memorial yesterday and, uh, was wonderful. Uh, every, it just went wonderfully. That had to be the best funeral I have ever been to. And not because I was hosting it. You know, I'm just saying everything, everything was just great. Uh, and... A reminder, next week out at Fox Farm, uh, we're going to have our picnic starting at 11. <laughs> Double check. Uh, so that, there's a few more of these cards back back there. If you're still on the fence about going, go ahead and pick one up, and we would love to have you. So, all right. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's thank God for for. Revelation, let's thank him for knowledge of the future and prophecy that not only puts us at ease, but warns us of things that we need to be beware of. And uh, so let's in humility and reverence, bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and that your word is ageless and unchangeable. We thank you that you have uh, warned mankind of your holiness and our sinfulness uh, since the beginning. And now that we have uh, the full revelation of Scripture, we know what is to come. We are so grateful that though we deserve wrath, we will not receive it. And that's not because of anything that we've done. We know that. It's because of what you've done through Christ our Lord. And we're going to celebrate that today as you've given us that one celebration to remember the whole reason why we're saved and that when we die, we're in, immediately in heaven face to face with you, that we have eternal life, that we have eternal security, that even though we're sinners, we're forgiven and you show us as sinners how to be holy. And all of it comes right from that foundation who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Who you sent to become a man and to be your light in this world. We thank you for him. We thank you for your word, for the spirit within that makes this all so real. And we ask, Father, that you bless our time here today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All rise. Holy. Oh, yeah. 
Oh 
Jesus Christ, will you guide me through this life? Wake me with each morning's light. Oh, and keep my soul through your strength. All my fears will fade away as you lead me in your ways. I will trust in you. Your love is deep. Your love is wide. I will rest. In your arms tonight Your love is deep Your love is wide I will rest I will rest Start in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, which is uh, as we're studying the we're studying both books of Thessalonians uh, and um, two letters that are truly for encouragement. That's their main purpose. You should not forget that uh, when you're studying a passage, you should it helps greatly in interpretation to know why the letter is written and what it's about. Uh, both of these letters, very short, uh, are meant for encouragement of believers who are with faith, hope, and love enduring 
the Christian life, and they're enduring it in the midst of a ton of persecution that's happening in Thessalonica. Uh, if you notice here in the uh, verse 1, we find out, he's, Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And for therefore, whatever reason, uh, it could be the gift of prophecy is, is functioning. There's a temporary, in my opinion, a temporary gift of prophecy uh, in the early church. And perhaps somebody, some had prophesied about the coming age and there was some confusion about it. Uh, Paul here mentions a letter as if from us, so maybe they got some outside information about this day of the Lord. For what we don't know, we can't know. But what we do know by this opening line is that they become bewildered and confused to the point that they, some at least, think that they may be either in it or it's already come. And so Paul's going to correct this, and that's the purpose of this opening to chapter two. Um, he's going to reveal to us what is clearly revealed in the Old Testament. And now that we have the whole scripture, we have a lovely book of Revelation to tie it all together, that there is a wrath of God coming upon the earth that has this phrase, this day of the Lord. Uh, that's what it's called. In multiple cases, it's referenced in Old Testament and New and it refers to, as most of you know, because we're dispensationalists, that it refers to a seven-year period known as the Tribulation, or the Great Tribulation. Uh, and its main purpose of this time centers around Israel. And we must not forget that. that this time is preparing Israel for the coming of her Messiah. However, it's not just Israel that's involved, it's the whole earth. And Israel is a small part of the population, as they will be then. Like, literally 1% of the earth's population. So, though it is for Israel, the whole earth is involved. And it is, if you were in it, you'd know it. And that's what Paul's going to say. If you're in it, you know it. Uh, so, <clears throat> for us, we have to think about, you know, the application to us, since we're not going to be in it, you know, what is the application and it's certainly not, you know, if you were involved in a natural disaster like the Johnstown, I keep calling it Johnstown now, the Johnstown flood or something like that, uh, going through a holocaust or, you know, somewhere where you're, you know, Christians are heavily persecuted in different parts of the world. They, they would read passages in the scripture and think, hey, I might be, this is the day of the Lord. It certainly looks like it all around me. But this is something different. You know, things are bad in certain places now. And they might be bad in your own life, but ain't nothing like what's coming. And over and over in the scripture it's stated. Well, as, the, as this week goes on, we'll look at more and more passages about it. Uh, so, when you look at the evil players in this world and the world as it is, are you hoping they'll get what they deserve? I'm, I'm going to have to say I'm pretty guilty of that at times. 
I just read Fox News for a few minutes or Epic Times, which I subscribe to, or other various, especially conservative sites, and I'm like, yeah, oh, they're going to get it. And even with, you know, this last uh, whatever congressional hearing about the weaponization of the federal government, I'm like, ooh, somebody's going to get it. Nobody gets it. (laughs) And I mean that literally and, uh, you know, whatever, physically. Um, That is not what this is going to show you. Because when you understand this wrath of God to come, you're not going to actually wish for the evil people of the world to get what they deserve. You're actually going to pity them and fear for them. And it's going to make you a better light to the world, a brighter light to the world. You'll find yourself complaining less about how things are. Not that you wouldn't want to correct them, or certainly want to if you could, to make your community better, or even your nation better. You certainly would. Why wouldn't we? But if we cannot, you will find yourself having great sympathy for the people who don't get it. For the people who think that happiness and life and the real purpose of mankind is wealth and power and sex and getting high or whatever else. Because it's not. And the wrath of God is coming upon the earth because of what? That is correct. I heard it whispered. We can't say it in church. Sin. (laughs) It's coming because of sin. Now, we scratch our heads. Christ is judged for the sins of the world. Why would judgment come upon sin? There's a very real reason. It's, not, it's, it's an expression of God openly about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what he is and what he's not. It's an open expression. Think about it. This tribulation happens, especially the bad part is the second half. Three and a half years. If you say, the whole thing's pretty bad, by the way. But anyway, seven years. In the history of the world, God releases his wrath upon the world for seven of those years. Why doesn't he do it all the time? <laughs> it would destroy. Well, yeah, that's a very good answer. No, the world couldn't take it because, as Jesus says, if the days weren't cut short, nobody would have survived. But why not? You know, why does he pick this one time to release his wrath upon mankind? Because he loves the world. He desires all men to be saved. He has come, as we just sang, to bring many sons to glory. But also, as a purely holy, none of us could truly comprehend what pure holiness is. This purely holy person of God has wrath against sin and he's going to show it and so you know like all the bad players of history could deserve everybody would deserve to be in the tribulation and experience it but they don't not all I mean and I know they're tortured in their own way but um, we'll deal with that as we go. But So um, when Paul says this, don't be quickly disturbed from your composure about 
as you see here again in verse 2, uh, well, going back to verse 1 again, uh, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can't 100% clarity say, is he talking about the coming of the Lord in terms of the rapture, or is he talking about the second coming in this first line? It depends. It depends on how you know how you view it, uh, and therefore that's not really the issue. Uh, the same word is used. The coming of our Lord is the Greek word parousia, uh, which is used also in First Thessalonians four for, which is an obvious reference to the rapture. And you know, it seems to me that this is the rapture, but whether we, if we can tell or can't tell, that's not the main thrust of the of the passage. Paul is not. If he wanted to distinguish, he would have, and it would be so easy to do. That's not what he's after here. What he's really after is the Lord is coming. He's coming for us, and after the tribulation, he's coming the second time for Israel to deliver and judge the world. There's a great judgment there at the second coming. That's going to happen, but when is it going to come? And he leads us into a sign here that has to happen before he comes again. And so the first line could be rapture or second coming, but what he's speaking of here in verse 2 is to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, the day of the Lord includes the tribulational period and the second coming. And some think it includes the millennial reign, too. It's debatable. Either way, but what is definite is that the day of the Lord includes the tribulation, which therefore the rapture happens before the tribulation. The rapture would be, therefore, the the precursor to it. And if you found yourself in the tribulation, well, then you missed the rapture. <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> and God is going to take care. Are there they're going to be? Plenty of people saved during the tribulational period because the gospel will be preached all throughout the world. But, again, that's not even the issue here either. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Sign number one, whatever this is, the apostasy, definite article there, not just any apostasy, the apostasy comes first. And, and this is great insight, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, we're going to get into this this week, but we know this to be the Antichrist, the beast, uh, the little horn, the man of sin. He's got like 30 titles in Scripture. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This, this man, it's a man, right? This man is the epitome of all that is wrong with the human race. Not, you know, and all of what's wrong with him is wrong with us or was wrong. That we were saved, we were delivered from that. We're going to look at that. He's revealed the son of destruction, another title, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The epitome of man's arrogance. I don't need God. We see it in our day and age where people are like, yeah, I know I was born a, born a girl, but now I'm a boy. Uh, who told you that? You know, and you know, I have sympathy for those who have uh, mental issues with that. And 
but um, you know the the way that it's presented in our society is that people can say to God, "I pick my gender, not you," and, and it's the ultimate revolt against God. I pick my gender. But the Thessalonians, as I said, in some way, have been confused. And Paul's going to give signs that highlight what's going to come. And the first, the apostasy, which we could say, well, you know, the apostasy, that's kind of vague. But then it's followed by this one, this man of lawlessness who puts himself in the temple. We know that for sure to be halfway through the tribulation that the beast, the one that comes out of the water, uh, the one who is the head of the ten kingdoms, uh, he puts himself in the temple. And demands worship as God. So as Paul says here, if you were living in that time, you would know it. And if we were, we would know it. Now thankfully, with the other revelation of Scripture, we know what this time is. It's a tribulation, or called Daniel's 70th week, which we looked at a few classes ago. Uh, and we're going rev- to look at it in detail. But today... We want to look at it as wrath. This is a time of wrath. But more specifically, where does the wrath come from? Satan persecutes Israel to, the, to worse than any anti-Semitism holocaust has ever been experienced in the history of mankind. By far. At three and a half, at halfway through, he breaks his, the beast breaks his treaty with Israel. We saw that Daniel's 70th week. That's when it starts. He makes a uh, treaty or a covenant with Israel. Halfway through, he breaks it. And then, when he puts himself in the temple, Jesus says it in the Gospels. He warned us all, if we're, if not us, but anyone who's through the tribulation, when you hear, you turn on CNN. If it's still alive, then I'm sure it will, because it's run by Satan. I'm just, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> When you, you see on the news that the abomination of desolation has put himself in the temple, he said, don't pack a bag, don't go back into your house, hit the road immediately because he's coming for you. And he has no, oh, did I go up again? He has no, absolutely no concern for you, no sympathy, no nothing other than what he is, a murderer from the beginning. As Satan is. But this beast is Satan's puppet. Satan's puppet. He's the epitome of all things wrong with fallen humanity. Uh, I am on, right? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I'll keep it going. Tribulation and the sound equipment. There always is. that rears its ugly head from time to time. All right, so here is my uh, created this morning a dispensationalism chart that is as rudimentary and unscaled. It's not to scale. It's not to anything. But the point I want to make is that OT is Old Testament. HU is hypostatic union. Uh, then there's the cross. There's a, I, I purposely put a, well, you can't really see it, but there's a little gap there. Uh, the time, you know, after uh, the, not there, not there, sorry, that's wrong. My bad, I put it in the wrong place. Here, between the rapture of the church, that's my arrow going up, 
and when the tribulation starts, there has to be a gap of time. Uh, I don't. It, it would be hard to figure out how it would work without one because the tribulation starts when the the beast is in authority and he makes a covenant with Israel. That's when Daniel's 70th week starts. So we can't imagine that that happens on the day of the rapture. But you know, God can do anything. When you do, when you don't know, admit you don't know, and then just say, "Well, I think there'll be a gap," and that's cool. But it's here at the second coming and the tribulation, the wrath of God in all this age and beyond the Old Testament, I mean Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis. In pockets and places, of course, there's God disciplining people. God's wrath came upon Israel when they went into captivity, but they didn't remain in captivity. They were there 70 years and they were returned as God promised and God prospered them and blessed them. And even after they rejected the Messiah, they were dispersed. The dispersion of Israel from the promised land from Palestine was a grace to them, even though they ended up being persecuted all over the world. But if they had all remained there in that war with Rome, they wouldn't have lasted. Now, God has taken care of them, continues to. That's why this is the nation of Israel right now. It's the only ancient kingdom that still survives. And they rejected. There's, it's not full of Christians. It's full of unbelieving Jews. And in all the Middle East, they are the strongest. They've won their wars. As God is with them. But there'll come a time when the wrath does come. And that happens all here. This over here would be the millennial reign. And all of this is when the wrath of God, just seven years, seven year period. And it comes upon the earth. Uh, so, let's go to go to Isaiah chapter two. Two passages in Isaiah, <clears throat> and there are superabounding passages on this. Many, many, many. But we want to understand how uh, how incredible this wrath is, and how it's different from anything the world's ever seen. And then we'll apply it to ourselves. Isaiah 2.12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. This again is a reference to the day of the Lord. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty. And notice what it comes against. It doesn't say against every unbeliever. God is specific. We're not saying just the proud unbelievers. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that the brunt, the, the object of God's wrath on this day is sin. <clears throat> now, if everybody on earth was just wonderful, God-fearing believers, every, you know, I don't see that there's a reason for this. Not for the wrath. Against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up. You see some wonderful Hebrew Hebrew poetry is parallelism. You have the first line that states the truth, and the second line states the same thing in a different manner and expounds upon it. It amplifies it. Against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Right, so you see the imagery is we lift ourselves up and God puts us down. 
Now, notice here it's against all the proud. Everyone who is proud. Not just the proud in Johnstown in 1899. Those preachers all throughout Pennsylvania were saying, See? Uh, they were blaming all the, the, the people who owned the, the, the uh, fishing and, you know, all, they were rich. That, not just rich. The people who were, you could not become a member of that club unless you were, a, well, back then it was a millionaire, but they'd be billionaires now. I mean, Andrew Carnegie was a member there. And they kept that lake stocked with fish. And so what they realized, there were, there were spillways on the side of the dam. You know, so the water could spill out. It's one of the problems with the dam is they never put in a, a pipe in the bottom to release the, the level of the reservoir in case it got too high. They were like, eh, whatever. We don't live down there. Yeah, so anyway, they, these spillways, the fish were going over the spillway. They'd stock this lake. And they're like, well, look at all the fish going downstream. All the poor people are getting them. So they put up grates. They put up these grates to stop the fish from going through. And when the level rose and the water was trying to get over, these, these grates were stopping it. So the grates helped the water get over the dam because they didn't want the fish to get out. And they were blaming the rich people, right? And none of them, they brought lawsuits against them. None of them, no convictions. Uh, <clears throat> What's my point there? I don't know. It was just fun to talk about. The, uh, the fact of the matter is that, yeah, in various pockets of the world, there's going to be some horrible stuff, and it's going to be caused by some evil people. That is not it in terms of the wrath of God at the tribulation. Because, by the way, who is the cause of the wrath at the tribulation? Is it Satan? Because Satan hates the Jews. That's why. Is it because he, there's other saints, there's Gentile believers during this time? He hates them as well. He brings persecution upon them all. Is this wrath the brainchild of Satan? It is not. Satan is a pawn in God's chessboard. This wrath is clearly comes from God. It's God's wrath upon the earth. That's why you and I will never experience it. He's not going to bring wrath upon his bride. He's not going to bring wrath upon his children, upon his family. It never. You look all over the New Testament. Never is the word wrath used in reference to the church. Never. Go to Isaiah 13. All right, it's all the earth. Isaiah 13:6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. That's funny. Isaiah writes this about 800 B.C. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Notice who it comes from. It's not from Satan. Satan is definitely going to persecute. It's it's going to be the beast. His puppet is going to persecute greatly. But the destruction comes from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Every man's. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look to one another 
in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Who will he exterminate? What, you know, an unbelievers. No, the emphasis is on sin. Because this is what has caused it all. Christ dies for sin. So these are definitely, yeah, they're unbelievers. But the emphasis is on, and and that's what we have to see it here in our age, is that though we're not going to go through it, we're all tempted with the one thing that God is going to pour his wrath out on. And we're all tempted with it. We have bodies that are filled with it. Or at least want it. And when we recognize the one thing that God is going to say, he's saving it up. Talk about unleashing a dam. That's what this is. The dam's going to break after the rapture of the church. And as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians 2, the restrainer, whoever that is, we think to be the Holy Spirit, takes his restraint off of what Satan desires to do. And Satan's going to have free reign to do what he wants. And he's going to cause a horrible world. And so God's just going to let... Look, people in the population could say no to what Satan wants them to do. He's not going to force them. He can't do that. He's not allowed to. But the world is going to be on board. And then the wrath of God's going to come. So as I'm tempted to sin, as I'm tempted to live a lifestyle, perhaps a secret lifestyle of sin. And I learn about this wrath that's coming upon that. And I've been set free from it through the blood of Christ. It's not a guarantee that you're going to say no, because temptation is very strong. You know this if you've tried to resist it. It's very strong. But with knowledge comes power here. Say, well, you know, do I want to go down that road? Because that's the road of, what did he say? Uh, Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. That's where I want to play? I don't know. (laughs) Doesn't sound like a good neighborhood to me. You know, again, it's not a guarantee that we won't. But God is... This is part of the reason why he's revealing it to us. My whole program for the human race is going to end close to the end, right before the coming of my, my, my son to make the world right and to make it his kingdom for a thousand years. My wrath, like it's been saved up to be poured out on sinfulness, on the sin of man. And I've set you free from it. So as Christ says, look, follow me. You can do it. And in only this age, only now, has God put in sinners the ability to be holy. Not that Israel couldn't be holy. They were commanded to, but not like us. No one in Israel wasn't dwelt by God. No one in Israel wasn't dwelt by the Holy Spirit. No one in Israel was in union with the Son of God. 
No one in Israel was standing firm in absolute perfect righteousness because their sins hadn't truly been paid for, not yet. And yet, here we are. God has made an experiment with sinners that He has given us every ability while in a sinful body or a body that wants to sin, and in a world where we're aliens, sojourning in an alien capacity in enemy territory. And Jesus said, be a light to the world. Be my light to the world. And we take in all that, and, you know, it's power. It's power over the lifestyles of sin that ruin our spiritual lives. So, uh, verse 10, For the stars of heaven in their constellations will not flash forth their light. This is literal, right? This is not a figurative saying. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. It's kind of like a nuclear holocaust everywhere. We read in the book of Revelation that all the water turns to blood. There's going to be an amazing amount of dehydration in the world. Thus I will punish the world for its what? Verse 11. Evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. There's that word abase again. These ruthless proud. Right? We read about them on the news. And we're like, ooh, I can't wait for them to get. They're going to get. I say, I say, well, what, yeah, but the tribulation's not coming today. They're getting away with it. Nobody's getting away with a thing. Whether you, if you, li- if you're a ruthless, proud person, uh, unbelieving, ruthless, proud person, because believers can be ruthless and proud too, unfortunately. But you know, let's say you live to be a hundred years old and you're rich and at peace and nothing really bad happens to you. But you have completely missed out on the life that God would have willed for you. You have completely and most likely been tortured in your own soul as a lonely person who never could truly learn how to love or whatever. And then you still have to die and face the judgment of God at the end of time. You're not getting away with anything. What's happening here is that God publicly and telling us about it first is that he's going to release his wrath upon mankind in his full vigor because of sin, evil, iniquity, pride, and ruthlessness amongst mankind. And by this, I'm not just going to tell you I hate sin, I'm going to show you. So, my children, who are now of my family, God says, who hold my name, don't go that path. And you'll learn, we all learn. <laughs> if we, I'm sure plenty of you have done it. I have. I've, I've pushed it. I've really pushed it. Uh, meaning that, not me, right, Lord? I mean, not me, right? What if I pursue a little path of sin on my own? It's it's okay, right? God says, you can pursue it. You're not going to find me there. 
and I am going to kick your sorry butt. And I say, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Thank you. He doesn't want this for us. I will make the mortal man scarcer than pure gold, and mankind the gold of Ophir. That's like a special gold. That's where they got the gold for the temple, by the way. Um, Yeah, so mortal man scarcer, that means people will be destroyed by the millions. You see this in the book of Revelation when those bowls get poured out. The trump, first it's the trumpets, and then the bowls. No, for, sorry, first it's the seals, then the trumpet. Not, not the the ones in the sea. You knew that. The seals on the scroll, the trumpets, the bowls. Uh, and therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place and the fury of who? Satan? Mankind? No. The fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. That's the day of the Lord. That's one passage out of dozens. This, this one hits hard. That's why I picked it. So some... And I'll hurry up here for the sake of time. Some think that the tribulation, some think that the church, and they're very good theologians, by the way, or pastors, write books and stuff. Uh, we looked at it a few classes ago. This is the, the post-trib rapture position. Did I skip that? No. I just get my slides out of order. Or I didn't make a slide. Okay, perfect. Uh, the post-trib rapture position, which states that the, you know the church is going to get caught up, that raptured at the second coming. So the church is going to go through the tribulation, and as Christ is returning a second time, the rapture happens. We meet him in the air, and then we accompany him to earth. And uh, yeah, I'm sure you haven't heard it before, you know, because we've all had the same teachers, and so we shake our heads at that and go, "Well, that's stupid." Uh, and you know, I agree that it's wrong. But if you study it through, you say, well, yeah, you know, I can see why they want that to happen. But it violates, and when I say want, they want because what I've discovered is they want one coming, not two. And to some people, when they're reading the scripture, they don't see two comings. Because the rapture is he's coming, but not all the way, right? And then the second coming, he's coming all the way. And, you know, there's issues with it. But it is all the evidence points to that being the true interpretation. Evidence points to it. God doesn't come right out and say it. All right. Uh, But here's the issue with that. Is that if this is true. Oh, I don't have it there. If this is true, that the earth goes through the tribulation. The church, sorry, goes through the tribulation. Then the church is the recipient of the wrath of God. Because it says no one escapes. And that's, that can't be true of us. We are not. First Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. And so in, uh, I think we'll, we'll just, all right, let's do Pentecost here. 
he writes, Dwight Pentecost and Things to Come, a great book on uh, end time stuff. Uh, it says, The tribulation period will witness the wrath of Satan and his animosity against Israel and, and of Satan's puppet, the beast, in his animosity against the saints. Yet even this manifestation of wrath does not begin to exhaust the outpouring of wrath of that day. Scripture abounds, as you see on the board, Scripture abounds in assertions that this period is not the wrath of men nor even the wrath of, God, of Satan, but the time of the wrath of God. Notice this passage in Revelation 14. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's in the tribulation period. Put that image and stick it in your mind. This is a very real time that's coming. Do you want to see them get what they deserve? Or, you know, like God wills all men to be saved. But we have to choose it. We have to believe the gospel of our own free will. All right, so we're not going to do that. That's wine, by the way, if you can't see that from the distance. That's the opening of a wine press. <laughs> it looks like something out of... Uh, uh, you know, Friday the 13th film or something. But uh, we're all sinners. All of us. No one is excluded. All of us sinners. When we attempt to comprehend the pure holiness of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, purely holy as God and man, in light of that infinite purity, and we comp try it, try and comprehend it. And then your own sin becomes like millions of little stains on a white shirt. You're pure and holy in God's eyes, so you have like a pure white shirt. In heaven, you're going to wear a pure white shirt. It's called a robe in Revelation 19. Without spot, without stain. But right now, it's covered in a bunch of tiny little, millions of them, little spots. Your personal sins. That's why judging others, out of line. Legalism, out of line. That self-righteous religious person, they don't see their dirty little spots. They think they're wearing a clean white shirt. They're not. Judging, legalism, self-righteousness, completely out of line. <clears throat> Sometimes, however, anti-legalists, which is a good thing, morphs itself into antinomianism and pursues sin. Now, the way of thinking of this is, well, my shirt's already got a million spots on it. What's a few hundred more? So sin away, my lad. That comes from mere Christianity. Sin away, my lad. All is the grace of God. This path is very wrong by many scriptures. It's also wrong by the fact that God's actions in history is to pour his wrath upon sin. As we read in verse 9, he will exterminate its sinners from it. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its, iniquity, for its wickedness and iniquity. 
Would we who are saved and made holy by God, by His love through the blood of Christ, whom He forsook and judged for all our sins, or Jesus paid for our sins in His purely holy soul, pursue, would we pursue what alone invokes the wrath of God just because we have stains on us anyway? Why not? Ponder it well, that very thing, and you'll find yourself less attracted to sin. Even though you'll be tempted to it, your flesh wants it. Isn't it amazing how much smarter God is than us? What He has done is made holy and cleansed sinners who still sin. This has never happened before. Only in our age, this is the first to happen, the first time to happen, that God has made holy, we're holy in His eyes, blameless, cleansed, we're cleansed of all sin, and yet we still sin. What He has also done is the work to prompt us to see Him and then love Him. If you see Him in His Word, you love Him. I find this a lot in my, in my life lately, last, even more so in the last few months for whatever reason is that the magnitude of the man Jesus Christ. I, I just I can't fathom it. And I, it's just as he becomes more real to us. That's all. As he becomes more real as a God-man who has done what he's done, who is what he is, you cannot be not blown away by him. You just can't be. You are changed by knowing him. And the more you know him, the more you're changed. And so you love him. And you, when you start to love him in the depth that you couldn't have imagined before, you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to be holy because he's holy. That's the command, by the way. I think it's First Peter 1.15. And I'm going to try real hard. I mean, as hard as I possibly can to live pure in his eyes. And then you find out that you just keep adding little spots to your white shirt. Oh, and there's a big old stain. That was yesterday or maybe this morning. You find that you, you set your heart to stop that addiction, that line, uh, that highway of sin that you've gone to, and you find that as hard as you tried, you still fell into it. So you keep adding to the little spots. And it's not that God has purposed you to do this. He doesn't want you to. But he has allowed it. And this is his classroom. Not that he needs you to sin. You're going to do it anyway. This is his lesson. By trying so very hard, we discover how strong sin is. Unless you know how strong it really is, you will always say in the back of your mind, I think I can beat this. But then, of course, it's way in the back of your mind, so you're going to say, well, I'll beat it tomorrow. I did that a lot. I'll beat it tomorrow. Oh, you wait. You <laughs> Sin, you wait. I'm showing up tomorrow. Yeah, right, you are. But you can't do it anyway. You tried so very hard. And what did you find? Something that you need to know. 
the strength and power of sin. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity devotes a a chapter to this. Uh, You know, you don't know the strength of the German army unless you fight them. He wrote it right after World War II, so that's why it's a German army. You don't know how strong the wind is unless you stand against it. You don't know how strong sin is, and a lot of people don't because they just give in to it, as many of us have, or maybe still are. But by trying so hard, we've discovered how powerful it is. And then so we say, now what? And again, this is all from this tribulation where God's going to pour out his wrath. On what? Sin, evil, iniquity, pride, arrogance, haughtiness. That's where it's going. And I'm trying to fight that. And then as... Students of the Word of God. That's why it's so important. It's so important to keep listening to God's Word. Keep reading it. Something like this maybe pops into your mind. You don't need to know it word for word, but something of it. The more I've gone on in the spiritual life, the more I would recommend trying to memorize some Scripture. It's very fruitful. Psalm 30, I don't say it's required, but I think it's very fruitful. Psalm 37, 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. So it's let go and let God, right? No, that's not what it said. That's just a quirky little thing that sounds like easier. Because <laughs> it is. It's all right, God, you know, I'm just a puppet in your hands. Do what you want. No. We have to make decisions. We have to be strong. We have to be wise. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the new day. In essence, what are we doing here? Being in God's presence. It may be hard to see the connection there, but I thought and prayed long and hard about this very final line of this lesson. What am I to do since I have tried so hard? And now I I recall or I know I have to put this in God's hands. And we know this phrase. We say it a lot. Put it in God's hands. We say it to people. Put it in God's hands. But how do we do that? It's not letting go because you still got to hold on. Letting go and letting God is, is just a quirky little false way that only leads to more sin, by the way. This is trust and obedience with a longing for his presence. I don't want anything for me. I just want to be closer to him. And to do that, I've got I've to let him take care of the things that I can't do. But I must be close to him. Today, this morning, this afternoon, I must walk with him. While while I'm in every situation that I'm in, I must be with him, my Lord. I must. And so I say, God, you have to do the things that I can't do. And you know when I say it, when when I'm convicted of it, I mean it. Uh, that's opposed to saying, yeah, God, take this. And you really don't care if he does or he doesn't. And in some way, you know, what that is, is that's a faith 
a choice, a volitional choice of faith that opens up God to do what he wants to do in you. And you're not taking any credit for it yourself. You're not doing it for some self-promotion or self-aggrandizement. You don't care about those things. I want you. I want to be close to you. Because you're the only one. C.S. Lewis, in that chapter in Mere Christianity, put it this way. It is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. And I would, I would expand upon that a little bit, as I just did. But in essence, correct. So in an incredible age where sinners stained by sin are in the eyes of God, holy, righteous, and completely forgiven, we're indwelt by the Son of God, the Holy Spirit. Our destiny is set and secure in heaven in the place where the Lord Jesus has prepared for us. And these are first, the first of we are, called to worship God in spirit and in truth. I hope we can see the wonderful application of the tribulation to us. We're not going to go through it. But where is God's wrath going to go? And where is it from? It's not Satan's wrath that makes the tribulation. It's God's. And God's wrath is against sin. All right. Now let's celebrate why we're no longer in sin. And let's uh, we'll pass out our elements and celebrate the Lord's Supper.
Uh, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to be in Matthew, if you want to join me, Matthew chapter 24, to, to start. And this truly will only take a minute or two as, um, you know, as, as we are called to, to celebrate this together, uh, that, that is one of the main tenets of the Lord's Supper, is that there's unity. There's unity in the body of Christ by which no matter where we are spiritually or what we've done or are doing, that here we are as saved, cleansed sinners together celebrating why we are saved and cleansed. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about the wrath of God today to come, and maybe you or someone you know and, and, and are going through some very difficult times, um, and, you know, you don't know how it's going to work itself out and, you know, what what's going to happen. And God is always ready to deliver. And how he's going to do that is up to him and what time and how long it takes and so on. So we opened up talking about the Johnstown flood. There's a great story. There's many great stories in this flood. Uh, and there's a great story about a baby that was in a crib, and the crib got washed away, separated from, I think it was a little girl, from her mother, and somebody fished the crib out of the river hours later, and the baby was unscratched. Out of all the people who got mashed and mangled by trees and all this other stuff, there was a barbed wire factory in that town. It's a steel town. And so all this barbed wire got caught up in the flood and wrapped itself around everything. <laughs> Just for added wrath. And uh, this little baby fished out of the river. Oh, fished out of, it wasn't the river. It was a torrent. Unscratched. Saved by the crib. Mother survived and thought she lost her child. And the child had a birthmark. I, I read this in the book. It has to be true. child had a birthmark she identified. And she was united with her little girl. Can you imagine? I would have renamed that kid Moses. <laughs> a baby in a basket. Even when the dam breaks of God's wrath and the tribulation, there are probably millions who are going to be saved. Look at Matthew 24, 7. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. I, God says, I am leaving no one without my gospel. I am leaving no one without my word. There is not going to be a time where people, and no matter how horrible the circumstance, could not be delivered by the death of my son. Amen to that. And so that's what we celebrate today. And we're not going to go through the tribulation. But when things happen in our lives, and they can come upon us very quickly. Or maybe they're not. You know, maybe life is, is easy right now. But whatever the case may be, you are cleansed, you are delivered, and you have a life in front of you that God has said has not entered into your heart the things that I have prepared for you. So follow me. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Cross means death, and we died with him. So in Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, 
Of course, this is the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This body is for you, given for you, so that you and I would have a resurrection body for all of time, all eternity. And together, let's eat the bread. This uh, bread without leaven, of course, is a representation of Christ's body that was without sin. And so, when he had taken a cup in verse 27 and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, and this would be the new covenant, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And thanks to our Lord for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Let's eat, drink the cup. Now notice what he closes with. Actually, not close. Hold on. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Absolute confidence that what he will do will succeed. And this is after the tribulation and the kingdom is established on earth for a thousand years. And we'll be with him all together. Yeah. Having a beautiful glass of wine with the Lord Jesus Christ. I assume it's going to be very good wine. So after singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I included this on purpose because... All of us celebrate this cleansing of sin, and we're so grateful, and we're so ready to get out there and be holy. And there's still a lot of Peter in all of us. Lord, I'm going to do this. You just wait. Uh huh. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, No way. Nuh-uh. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus was probably like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Yeah, he did not. But we're we're all a work in progress. We're going to keep sinning. The point is, you're free. And if you're free, you're free indeed. Now Christ says, look, follow me. You can do this. Follow me and see the fruit of my kingdom in your life now. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and for your promises, and most certainly, most importantly, for our Lord and Savior. It's not about us. It's about Him. This whole life is about Him because He is life. And that's why we follow Him, and yet still, live in this world together, interacting with one another, interacting with the world, making our own decisions. 
but with him, because he and he alone is life. We thank you, Father, that through his sacrifice, all who believe upon him will be saved. So I dedicate these few moments to anyone listening who has not believed in Christ as their Savior. If you're listening to me, I beg you to please consider the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. No one else in all history of any religion has ever promised you that he would take your place in judgment. But he has. He has done it on the cross thousands of years ago. He cried out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken for you so that you'll never have to be forsaken. So believe upon him and the Lord Jesus who died for you and raised again on the third day, who now sits in, at the right hand of God in heaven, will welcome you into his glory. It's not of works, it's of faith. So accept what he has given through faith. Thank you, Father, so much for your amazing grace and salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So uh, uh, thank you for your patience. I know we started late. I'm always about time. I'll get over it someday. Might go in too long. So we'll take our offering, and, and I'm not letting you go without that. And then, uh, and then we'll let you go. Or the wrath of God will come upon you. That was that's a quiz. Will the wrath of God come upon a cheapskate? Only if they're in the tribulation. Only if they're in the tribulation. Let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give as your believer priests in love of you. We give sacrificially in in worship of you. And not because of it's not numbers, it's about the love of of worshiping you. And we ask that you bless this offering in Christ's name. Amen. Uh-huh.